If you don't own a Bible or you forgot your Bible this morning, there should be a white paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. Feel free to use that, and you can take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. Luke chapter 1. When you're there, say, a Savior is born. All right. Luke 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. We're glad that you're here. And as you can tell, we are beginning a new sermon series today uh, entitled Christmas Carols for our Advent season. And um, many of you maybe have grown up and don't know what Advent is. Um, Advent actually comes from the Latin phrase, which means the coming or the arrival. And um, as we look back upon church history, Advent has been celebrated for over a thousand years by the Christian community. And really, when you think about it, um, calendars sort of make us tell time. And so when you look at the Roman calendar, it told the Roman story. And when you look at our American calendar with Fourth of July and those type of things, it tells the American story. And when you look back upon the Christian calendar, it tells us the story about Jesus Christ. And really what Advent is, it's about two things. Advent is a season of reflection and preparation. Reflection as we look back upon Jesus' first coming and preparation for his second coming. And so during this season, it's really a gift to us. Because a season that's filled with the lights and Christmas time and all of that actually is filled with hustle and bustle and organizing schedules for families and we've got to get the Christmas list and cooking the meal and doing all of that. And a time of reflection actually becomes extremely busy. And what Advent does is it slows us down and it invites us into the story of Jesus. And we look back that Jesus Christ has come. And this week, as I was preparing in my own heart for this, I mean, think about this. Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 say that Jesus Christ created the universe and that he literally spoke it into existence. And we celebrate during this season that the God that spoke this into existence became a baby. And when you think about that, it literally almost just blows your mind. But we don't just look back We also look forward, and this can be a great spot for an amen for you. The 9 a.m. was a little weak, so I'm expecting a lot more from the 11 a.m., okay? That Jesus Christ has not just come once, but Jesus is coming again. And so we get to look forward to that, and we prepare for that time. And so as Pastor Tyler and I were praying and looking for really a series to lead us and guide us in this, um, the idea of Christmas carols popped into our mind. And um, if anything, we're not going to be studying like uh, Christmas carols or anything like that. Because here at Westside, we love the Bible. Amen? Oh, that was a bad one. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go at it again. Okay, we love the Bible here at Westside, right? 
And so really what we're looking at is in Luke's gospel, in chapters 1 and 2, we see four particular songs that are sung by individuals. And uh, church history records them as the songs of the nativity. But really when you think about it, I don't know anything that marks the Christmas season and holidays like Christmas music, right? Now, I know there's a love-hate relationship for this, and I think I was in Walmart during Halloween and heard Joy to the World. Now, I don't know if that's illegal or not, you know what I mean? But, I mean, I tell you what, anything that ushers in the holiday season is most definitely holiday music. And what's interesting is, like, we were up in St. Louis uh, this past weekend, and I saw in decorations, literally in West County Mall, Um, I saw scripture verses and lyrics to these songs used for decoration. But what's so interesting about it is they were massively, deeply theological. I mean, it was like systematic theology. And I'm walking around going, does anybody else see this stuff? Like literally phrases that say, unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior, Christ our Lord. And, like, people use that to decorate their living room. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that means God has come and that he's a savior. I even saw one decoration that said he is the savior to save us from our sins. And I'm sitting here going, does anybody actually understand what this time of year actually means? Because I think we even sing these Christmas carols. And we brush past how deeply rich and theological they are. But one thing I think that we can always turn to to refresh our imagination is children, right? Because here's the deal. Kids will tell you the truth, bro, right? They will tell you the truth. I saw something one time that says things that will always tell you the truth are spandex, alcohol, and kids, right? And I don't know, but I think some of those are actually true. And um, a local news station actually interviewed some kids as to what they thought the lyrics to popular Christmas songs were. Because I think we sing them, and sometimes they sound a little bit different. And so they interviewed these kids, and this is great, man. These are popular Christmas songs that kids sing, and they think that these are actually the lyrics to them. So Silent Night, right? Love Silent Night, very popular song. Kids think that Silent Night goes like this. Around John's virgin, mother and child. John, I don't know who John is, but he's got a virgin. You know what I mean? Um, Noel, Noel, famous uh, uh, Christmas hymn. Noel, it goes like this. Noel, Noel, Barney's the king of Israel, right? (laughs) That's great, I love it. Uh, Joy to the world was the most misunderstood according to the kids and according to the article. The first one, joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has gum. (laughs) Gotta love the Lord, right? Always keeping my breath fresh, you know what I mean? And then the second one, this is fantastic. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, let's have fun. The earth receive her keys. Apparently the earth has lost her car keys, you know what I mean? So, but today as we look at Mary's song is, is what we're focusing on for the first carol or song as we look at Advent. And there's really some background that you need to know when you look upon Mary's song. And then when you think about Mary's story, it's unreal. Most scholars believe that Mary was actually probably 13 or 14 when she gave birth to Jesus Christ. 
And really, this is the story of Mary. Mary is engaged to Joseph, right? They're engaged to be married. And then an angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary and says, Blessed are you, for in God's grace he has chosen you, and you will bear Emmanuel, the Savior of the world. And Mary's kind of like, a little problem here. I'm a virgin and I'm not married, right? And the angel says, no, that's the whole point. The Holy Spirit will come, overshadow you, and God will plant the seed in you that will grow to be the son. Like, isn't it popular nowadays, like when you look on social media, how like people announce, you know, the gender of their baby or like birth announcements and stuff like that, right? Imagine if Mary had Instagram, right? I mean, she's, selfie, she's like taking a selfie with angels in the background. You know what I mean, right? Like, you know, we're expecting God. You know what I mean? Hashtag still a virgin. You know what I mean? Right? I mean, like Mary's Instagram account would be incredible if you looked at this thing. And what Mary is doing here is she has traveled to see her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is like almost 80 years old. And giving birth to John the Baptist, who's going to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And literally, when she comes in contact with Elizabeth, what it says is John is in the womb of Elizabeth. And that when they encounter each other, that literally John leaps in the womb with joy. And they have this moment, and they break out in worship. And Mary says in the passage, my soul magnifies the Lord. And she bursts out into song. But when you look at the passage... Mary is singing about who God is and what he's done. If you look at the text, she literally says the phrase, he has, he has, seven times. She says that. And the whole key of the passage is really in verse 48. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and you should be asking the question, why? And in verse 48, she says, for or because. And then Mary walks through and tells us why she is singing. And today as we look at Mary's song, and as we begin Advent, this is the big idea that I want you to leave with today. Christmas reveals to us who God is, what He has done, and what He will do. That's what Mary sings about, the very nature and character of God, who He is, what He's done. She looks back upon God's faithfulness, and then she looks forward in faith, as to what God will do. So what we'll do is we'll walk through the text and see the nature and character of God and then draw that application to your own life and what that means. The first thing that Mary sings about is this, that God is personal. So that means I am loved. God is personal, so I am loved. If you look in verse 48, Mary says this, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant." The word that he has looked, the phrase in the original is really beautiful. It literally means this. God has turned his head and he has looked at the estate of his people. It's profound and literally almost overwhelming when you think about the concept that God is not distant. It really sets Christianity apart from all other religions in the world. Most other religions have their God um, sort of making creation and spinning it like a top and then stepping back and not being involved in the creation. But Christianity tells a different story. Christianity says that our God created everything but is also involved in his creation. 
And Mary says, the very God of the universe has looked down upon me. One of the things about Mary is is that she was a woman of the word. Because there are so many Old Testament passages that she references in her song. And one of the implications that she's drawing on is in Genesis 16. Uh, I don't know if you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16. But Abraham and Sarah are in their 80s and God promises them a child. Can you imagine that? 80 years old, you're going to get a baby, right? Imagine how awkward that baby shower is, right? Here's some diapers and a walker for you, right? You know, not for the baby, but for you, you know what I mean? And God comes to them and promises them and says, I am going to bless the entire world through this baby because through the lineage of you will come the Savior of the world. And Sarah is so in awe that God has literally cared about their situation, that she says in Genesis 16, she gave a name, Sarah gave a name to the Lord who spoke to her. She called him, you are the God who sees me. That's because she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. It's profound, isn't it? All through scripture, we see God being involved in his creation. From Sarah and to Mary, They're saying that God sees and knows the estate. Listen to me. God has not forgotten you. God knows your situation. And God sees you. But what's even more profound than that is God doesn't just see you or give you advice. Maybe this will help. Um, This past weekend, I had the privilege and opportunity of being one of the keynote speakers at MYF. And um, I got to have my family go with me. And I love traveling with my family. They just make me seem more legit. You know what I mean? People see me, bald head, tattoos, and they're like, that guy's a little sketchy. And then they see Courtney, and they're like, well, I guess he's done something right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then they see my family, and they're like, oh, he is normal. Okay, right? And so we, we, we're traveling, and we pull up there to the hotel. And I, I drive a minivan, praise be to God. You know what I'm saying? 30 years old, pastor, driving minivan. Never thought my life would turn out like this, but it has. And greatest investment, greatest purchase we ever had. We got friends, they'll hook you up at Larry Hillis Dodge. They'll hook you up with a minivan today. You know what I mean? Greatest investment we ever made. So, but when we travel, I'm always in awe of the stuff in our van. Just stuff. Like chicken nuggets from two months ago. You know what I'm saying? So we're there at the hotel, and I pull up, and I kick the back end, and everything's falling out, and I'm getting all the bags and all the stuff, and I got a plate full of chicken nuggets and stuff like that, and just a guy saw me unloading my van, and was like, hey, man, do you need any help? And, you know, classic guy fashion, I was like, no, man, I'm fine. And right when I said, no, man, I'm fine, the wind blew, blew the chicken nuggets all over the parking lot, and I was just struggling. The struggle was real, man. And then the next thing I know, I'm reaching to get in these bags, and the guy comes up, and he picks up some of my bags, and he carries them to the door with me. And I was like, thanks, man. I got his name, and he wasn't even there for the conference, and just a nice gentleman. And as I was walking to the hotel room, I thought to myself, man, there's a profound difference in giving someone advice and giving someone yourself you know what the guy didn't do? What are you doing? Carry the bag in the other hand. They've got carts inside. Here's what you need to do. Step number one, get your life together. Okay, bro? Step number two, get rid of it. Like, he did not shout advice at me. He came and literally, like, bore my own burdens, carried my bags. 
And what Mary is saying in this passage is, you know what's so different about Christianity and what we celebrate this time of year? Listen, the Christmas story tells us this, that God did not just give us advice. He gave us himself. Do you know the difference in that? Some of you think that God has a list of do's and don'ts. And when you do the don'ts, then God's not involved in your life anymore. And God's very distant, and he's just shouting at you to get this stuff together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you got to work all this out, and you got to do all this. And the Christmas story tells us something entirely different. Listen, God did not just shout advice at us. He literally came and became one of us. So do you know the excuse that you cannot rattle off to God? You don't understand. God, you don't know what it is to be in a dysfunctional family. Really? Jesus' family thought he was crazy and tried to disown him at one point. God, you don't know what it is to be hurt by a best friend. Really? Jesus was betrayed by Judas, a very dear friend of his. God, you don't know what it's like to love people who don't love you. Really? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I gather you like a mother gathers her hens, but you have refused me. See, there's no excuse that you can lay before God and say you don't know what it's like because he didn't just give us advice. He gave us himself. And so the fact that God is personal, listen, this is maybe why you came to church today, and it's this. Because God is personal, you can know that you are loved. And I know that sounds radical, and I know what you're saying. And I know you're saying about what I've done and, and all of this, but listen, that's grace. It is grace to know that you are loved when you don't deserve it. That's why Mary is singing. God is personal, so I am loved. The second thing is this. God is powerful, so I can be weak. <laughs> you're like, I thought I came for a good message today. Right? What do you mean I can be weak? Well, look, Mary sings primarily about two attributes of God. Look in verse 49. For he who is mighty, powerful, strong. Why? He has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, see, primarily if you grew up in one of two traditions in the Christian church, you have put Mary on two bad pedestals. Number one, we have either made much of Mary and she has become an object of our faith, which she is not an object of our faith. She's an example of our faith. In the beginning of the passage, she says that God is my Savior, which logic tells me that Mary needed saving, right? And we see later on in the gospel accounts that Mary offers a sin sacrifice. So Mary was not sinless. God chose Mary out of his own grace, not out of Mary's goodness. So we don't put her on a pedestal and worship her, but we look to her as an example of our worship. But she says, the reason why I'm singing about holiness is not innately because of myself, but it's because the child that I am bearing is the Holy One of God. But what we also cannot do is lower her and not speak about her because she gave birth to God, right? I think her bumper sticker beats yours, okay? Mary doesn't really care that your kid was on the honor roll. Her kid was God. You know what I'm saying? Never lied, never did anything like that. So she primarily sings about two attributes of God, not about herself, but about of God and his strength. And the first one is God's holiness. She says, holy is his name. Do you know the word holiness means to be separated? What Mary is saying is God is pure. 
He is holy. He is separated from everything and anything else. The psalmist says that God cannot literally be in the presence of sin. Habakkuk says that God cannot even look upon sin. And 1 John says that God dwells in an unapproachable light. That God is light. That is the very essence of God. And I, and I believe if you interviewed the average person on the street and you said, Hey, what's the most common mentioned attribute of God in the Bible? What do you think they would say? Love, right? Because we love everything about fairies and kumbaya and God is right? God is love, man. Peace and love, right? Jesus looks like a white guy, lost member of the Beach Boys. You know what I'm saying? Love. You know, that is not the most mentioned attribute of God in the Scriptures. The most mentioned attribute of God in the Scriptures is His holiness. And anytime anybody is in the presence of God, they fall on their face as though dead. And they sing and say, God is holy. Do you know what's happening in heaven right now? There's a throne in heaven and seated upon it is Jesus Christ. Because he died and three days later he rose again. And 40 days after that he ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And angels are literally surrounding the throne. And according to Isaiah chapter 6, they have six wings. Two in which they cover their face. Two in which they fly. And two in which they cover their feet. And they are singing back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for the whole earth is filled with His glory. The angels literally sing of His holiness. Maybe a guy in history can help us with this, the scientist by the name of Isaac Newton. He was a scientist and became a Christian and loved the Lord. And one day, uh, Isaac Newton, as history records, was doing an experiment, and he was looking at the reflection of the sun in a mirror. And he was looking at it and observing to see if by the naked eye you could see the radiation coming off the rays of the sun. Because I don't know what you do in your spare time, but that's what scientists do. You know what I mean? And he looked at the reflection of the sun in the mirror for so long that he almost burned out his retinas in his eyes. He had to sit in his house in his bedroom for three days in total darkness. History records that the housemaiden came in and lit a candle in his room to clean. And when she lit the candle, he loathed in agony because the candle was too bright. And here's what Isaac Newton records in his diary. I used all means to divert my imagination from the sun, he writes. But if I thought upon the sun, I presently saw the picture, even though that I was in the dark. If I cannot stand to be in the presence of a candle... How can I ever endure the very presence of the Son? And Isaac Newton later related that to the holiness of God. Listen, I don't give a rip if you think God's holy or not. That's a fact, bro. And whether you're in the darkness or not, God is holy. And can you imagine that big burning star in our solar system called the Sun pales in very comparison to the purity and the holiness of God. Westside, please do not have a low view of God. Have a high and exalted view of God. God is powerful so I can be weak because of his holiness. The second thing is this, God's mercy. His mercy, Mary says these words, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, oftentimes, God's mercy and his grace are confused. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. You know how outlandish the gospel is? 
This is how crazy the gospel is. You are not only made right in the sight of God, though we are rebellious creatures. We are not only saved and made right in his eyes. We are rewarded because of Christ. So listen, this is what this means. You are not just forgiven. God did not just save you, but he also delights in you. Like some of you think God saved you and just kind of has to put up with you. Like, oh, this guy's praying again. Jeez. Holy Spirit, Jesus, come listen to this prayer. It's a joke, right? Some of you actually think that. God did not just save you, but he actually delights in you. That's called God's mercy. It's his active kindness towards creation and his goodness. Maybe one illustration can help us. There's a gentleman by the name of Robert Morris who was at Cambridge University. And he was writing his doctrinal thesis on a social experiment. Because I don't know what you do in your spare time, but guys who go to Cambridge write doctrinal thesis on social experiments. And one of his social experiments that he did is he took a common game called the balloon game. It's a picture of what it looks like. And what you do is you get a balloon, tie a string on one end, and on the other end, you tie that around your ankle. And the name of the game, youth groups do this all the time. It's a great way to show the love of Christ. Uh, What you do is you go around and try to stomp out the other person's balloon while still protecting your balloon, right? Survival of the fittest. Some of you competitive people right now are like, yo, let's play the balloon game right now, right? And he did it in two classrooms. Now, this is Cambridge University. This is pretty serious stuff. And he did it in two classrooms. The first classroom, he came, gave the instructions. Students tied the balloon around their ankle, and they got after it. And they just went around just stomping people out, right? And his experiment proved true. The biggest, baddest, meanest kid in the classroom won. And he stomped out everybody else's balloon while still having his balloon intact. And what was funny is what he says in the article is he says, it was so crazy to see the tension immediately rise in the room. He said, I gave the instructions and tension was already in the room. And people were already sizing other people up, right? They hadn't even tied a balloon around their ankle yet. And they're already like, I'm coming after you, buddy. You know what I mean? Then he went to the second classroom, which was a special needs classroom. And he gave the instructions in that classroom. And he watched. And he said that I was in the corner and began to cry. And the teacher began to cry. Because one little girl who had Down syndrome lined everybody up on their own. And he thought, wow, she's got great control over this whole classroom. And then she did something profound. She knelt down and she held her balloon while the person stomped that balloon and everybody cheered. And then the next person knelt down and held that balloon. And they stomped it and everybody cheered. And they went down the line until the last person stomped the balloon and everybody cheered. And Robert Moore said he was writing in his notebook as he fought back tears and said, who got the game right? You see, some of you think God is going around just trying to stomp, just trying to stomp your life out every chance that you get, every avenue that God is out for you and he's trying to get you. And what Christmas tells us is God is not running around stomping people out. Rather, God's getting down on his knee in the act of mercy. And he's showing us this humble act of Christ becoming one of us. But who's God doing this to? Look at Mary's song. Look at what she says. God is not just for people, but God is also opposed to people. And do you know who those people are? Look at what she says in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud 
in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty. What Mary is saying is, listen, do you know who God shows his mercy and his kindness to? To people who know that they are broken. To people who know that they don't deserve it. Do you know who God is opposed to? People who are shaking a fist at God saying, you owe me this. That's the difference in religion and the gospel. Religion is, I obey, so maybe God will accept me. So I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, and if anything bad happens to my family, I'm going to rage at God because God owes me something because I did this. You know what the gospel says? I'm accepted on Christ's behalf, so therefore I obey because I know that I'm owed nothing in my life. Spurgeon always says that no one stands tall at Calvary. But we are always on our knees. Augustine said that pride is the mother of all sins, for she is pregnant with the rest of them. Problem in your marriage? Pride. Problem in your parenting? Pride. Problem in your workplace? Pride. And how can we read this and look at this and be proud? Because look at God. He's showing his kindness to a particular group of people, weak people. Did you know this, that God is not attracted to your strength. God is attracted to your weakness. Doesn't that just grade against you? You can't stand that. Because everything else in your life says that you need to be rewarded upon your strength. And the gospel says the first step to understanding the gospel is understanding your need for Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, meditating upon the Advent. Here, God confounds the reason of the unreasonable. Here, he aggravates our very nature, our piety. That is where he wants to be, and no one can keep him from it. Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings, God marches right in. He chooses people as his instrument and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to the lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Listen to me. Do you want to see God's power flow in your life? Admit your weakness. Don't hold up your strength. The moment that we hold up our weakness and show God our need is the very funnel in which God flows. That's where his power is found. And listen, quite frankly, can I just say this? It's exhausting to act like you have it all together. And many of you have tried this church thing. And you have tried this Jesus thing. And you are worn out from it. Because you think constantly that you have to have a face And that you have to have it all together in order to come to Christ. See, the very aspect of knowing that God is powerful is resting in the fact that you can be weak. And one of the things that we say here at Westside is this. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. We don't revel in our past, and we don't always constantly say, oh, I don't have it together, and I'm constantly not getting it together. Because where there is true confession and repentance, there is true change. 
And so the fact that God is powerful, listen, you can rest in the fact, look at me, that you don't have to have it all together. Please don't go through this Advent season acting like you have to have it all together. The very fact in the story that we revel in is that we can be weak in this. God is powerful, so we can be weak. He's personal, so I'm loved. And the last thing is this, that he's faithful, so I can trust him. He's faithful, so I can trust him. Look at the last part of Mary's song in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Here it is, verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you know how, like, listen, I love Mary because she's a woman of the word. And she knows that God will be faithful to future promises because she knows the past promises of God. Mary's Bible was marked up, man. And what she's saying is, I remember and recall the promise that God made to Abraham. Do you know how long ago that was when Mary is singing this? There's about a 1,200-year about a difference to where God is being faithful to his promise. And listen, so this is why some of you came to church today. Some of you are praying and pleading the very promises of God, and you're not seeing anything, and you're not hearing anything. Listen, two things. Number one, God's silence does not mean that he's absent. Just because he's silent doesn't mean he's absent. And then this, this isn't original with me, but it's good. God's delay is not his denial. Just because it hasn't happened on your time doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. And here's what's so important to understand the very promises of God, man. Listen, I need the promises of God in my life, man. I plead the very promises of God. That's why at Westside, when you're singing these songs, there's scripture underneath them. We want to sing the word. We want to see the word. We want to pray the word. We want to read the word. We want to hear the word. Why? Because we know that what God has promised, he will come true on. God is batting a thousand on every promise that he has. Has ever made. That's why it's important for you to know God's word. Because I plead my life on the very promises of God. Do you know what gets me up in the morning? Do you know what gets me through every single day? Is the very promises of God. That when I'm failing and then when, when I'm doubting, is God's word going to be true? That when I turn on the news and I see something happening, or when people say that science opposes the Bible, or there's all of these arguments and I question God, is your word true? I plead the promises. Proverbs 30, chapter 5. Every word of God proves true and is a refuge for those who take shield in him. When I get anxious and I think about the future of Westside and I think about all of this, I think about Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for today is sufficient of his own trouble. And 1 Peter, when he says, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. When I get anxious for my family and I think, will God save my children or will my children turn away from God. I always think of the story of the prodigal son where God chases after his children. Listen, man, you got to have the promises of God in your life. I love your devotional. Your Jesus Calling book is great. That's awesome if it gives you sugar plum fairies inside your gut. But what I need on Monday morning is rock solid promises of God in my life, man. And what Mary is saying is God is faithful so you can trust him. But listen, you can't trust God and be in control at the same time. And you're going to have to surrender that aspect of your life. Because listen to me, 
God can do a much better job at it than you can. You make a horrible God. Horrible God. And what Mary is saying is the only way that this can be happening is because God's faithful. Yes, it took a long time. But listen, parents, look up here. I know you pray for those babies as you should, but do you trust God enough that if he answers those prayers and you're not around to see him, is he still good? Like, I think sometimes we pray these prayers hoping that we ourselves would see them. Do you know the generations of people who never saw this promise? But they still declared God's faithfulness and his goodness. Listen, faith is not found and tested on the mountaintop. Faith is tried and forged in the valley. And what Spurgeon says, don't ever doubt in the darkness what you saw in the light. And what Mary is saying is, I have seen this. And God has promised this, and this is true. So what's our exhortation today? What are we supposed to do in light of this? What's the response? What's the application for this? We're supposed to do exactly what Mary did. My soul magnifies the Lord, and I sing because of his praises. There's a verse tucked away at the end of the book of James, and it tells us this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing a song of praise. Westside, do you know how much you have to sing for? We live on this side of the cross. Christ has come. We have God's word. We can leave here today knowing that God is personal and I am loved. I can leave here today knowing that God is powerful. So I can be weak and we can leave here today trusting and knowing that God is faithful so I can give my life to him. The band's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. And I want you to sing, to sing and know that the God of the universe cares and knows for you and that we have a song to sing. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and God, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word, how you've revealed yourself to us. And God, we look back. And look and see who you are at your character and your nature. We look back upon what you've done. And when we do all of that, it forges inside of us faith and the promises of future grace. Knowing what you will do because you've promised it. God, I pray for the families in here today, for the marriages, for the children, for the workplace, for the financial situation, for the sickness, all of those things. God, we plead the promises back to you today. That's what we sing. We plead them back. And we trust and know that just because you're delaying doesn't mean you're denying. But you're working something inside of us today. As we come to the tables, we see the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. There, our faith is renewed, knowing that Christ has come, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand right where you're at and come forward and partake in communion as you feel led today?